Good morning. I am excited for a uh, couple of reasons today. I love being with you guys at Hoggard High School. But I'm also grateful and excited because the central office of New Hanover County has deemed fit to turn the heat off for the first time. So we are grateful that the air conditioner is on. Um, I'm Michael Mattis, and we are, we, uh, I am pastoring uh, the little new church plant here called Saltbox. We're glad to have you if this is your first time. Um, we are going through a series called the Easter Sequence. Um, I'm going to be reading today out of Luke 24, verses 34 to 53, if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your phone or wherever you like. Um, but let me just do a short recap. We started out this series with a look at the Mount of Olives and Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey. And we had all these people yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were so excited. They wanted him to take over and overthrow Rome. And then it wasn't but a short, short few days later that they were so frustrated and disappointed that they yelled, crucify him. So we talked about expectations and disappointment. We talked about the Lord's purposes versus ours. Then we went on from there and we talked about Gethsemane, which really was a garden in which the moment of decision happened between Christ and God. Was it going to be his will or was it going to be God's will? We talked about how we each face that decision. Then we went from there and we talked about Golgotha and the resurrection. All these are on our podcast if you want to go back. But we looked at three people that day, Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea, and Simon of Cyrene. Really incredible stories from all three of those people. Then we talked about the Emmaus Road last week and a really fascinating study about Cleopas and Mary. And this week we're going to hit the commission and the ascension. Now, next week, we have one of our elders, Ruth Calver. She's sitting right here. She's going to be preaching on Mother's Day, so uh, look forward to that. She's an amazing communicator and probably um, does her best work in places like prisons, uh, third world countries where there's very little hope, and she has the ability to go into places that are absolutely hopeless and minister the gospel of Christ Jesus. She probably won't be as comfortable here in front of you, so I hope you give her a warm welcome. But she's a remarkable communicator, and uh, she might be one of the best you've heard from us yet, all right? Then the week following that, we're starting a new series, and we're calling it Cephas. It's about Simon Peter, and we're going to look at Simon Peter and his journey from being a fisherman to being the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Sound good? All right, let's dig into Luke 24 today. Uh, I am going to read it. Read along, Perry may or may not have it up there for us. <clears throat> and we're going to start at the very end of where we finished last week. We're going to start in verse 34. And this is out of the NIV. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, and they were saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way. Now remember, that's Cleopas and Mary from last week. And how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself... I've got to pause here just a second and say, there are certain passages that as a, um, as a pastor, when you preach, it's like uh, fear and trepidation a little bit. You feel woefully inadequate to fully communicate the breadth and depth of what's, what's being said. And I feel woefully inadequate. The, the, um, the, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ Jesus is so complete. Father, would you open your scriptures to us today? 
Let's keep going. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled, frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. See me. A ghost does not have flesh and does not have bones as I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands, he showed them his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in this city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Lord Jesus, as we open your scripture today, Father, would you allow me to get out of the way? Father, would you allow the anxieties and the multitude of worries that crowd into each of our hearts and minds to get out of the way? And Father, would you, by your spirit, with the very spirit of Jesus, the very Holy Spirit, be present to illuminate your word and to change us, Lord Jesus? Father, we praise you in your name. Amen. <clears throat> As a family, we love original art. My wife, Abby, um, is actually a painter, beautiful painter. She paints these huge, big, beautiful pieces. We actually just a month or so ago had a doctor, uh, doctor's office, and I think it was Charlotte, commissioner, and she painted four big pieces, and they met, and we had them framed, and anyway, it's just beautiful. We've had an opportunity a couple times to take our kids um, up to New York City. This was pre-Amelia. We spent a couple weeks in New York City for spring break one time. And some of our favorite spots were the Met and the MoMA and the Guggenheim. We spent a spring break one time in D.C. And some of our favorite spots were the art museums there. There's a piece of art by a guy named Caravaggio. And it's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. The Incredulity of St. Thomas. And what this piece of art actually depicts is you have Jesus, and there's three um, disciples there. And, and as, you, as you look into this painting, what you see is you have Jesus um, taking uh, one of the disciples, probably Thomas's hand, and actually putting his hand into that scar that would have been on the side of Jesus. So go back with me in your memory just a little bit. We talked about it a few weeks ago. But to determine and to confirm that Christ Jesus was dead, that Roman soldier went up and he thrust a spear up under the ribcage of Christ Jesus, probably up into his heart, to ensure that he was dead. And in this painting, you have um, this painter who's literally taking the hand um, of, of Thomas and he's pulling it into that scar and you actually it, it, you, you get to see sort of this look on Thomas's face and this look on Jesus's face and you have these two disciples who are like standing there 
And this was painted in the 1600s. But it's this sort of awe-inspiring, moving um, sort of uh, piece. And you could even probably say that Jesus' hand and then the hand of Thomas almost makes like that same spear that penetrated the side of Jesus. And it goes in sort of into that, that scar. And it's almost like you can see in that moment that Thomas is recognizing not only that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, but that he too is being pierced. Because I'll remind you, we all come to Christ when we recognize for the first time that Christ died for us. But that journey continues when we recognize that we are also called to die with him. We lay our lives down in full surrender. And that is the moment in which he begins to truly empower us and fill us and use us for his glory in all of our communities and places. He painted that in the 1600s. But I think what is amazing to me is just this moment when Jesus appears to this little group. And so I began to wonder, as I'm digging through this scripture over the last couple of weeks, I began to wonder, why is it that Jesus actually hung around after he died? Like, why didn't he just go to heaven? Have you ever wondered that? Why hang around? And Acts 1 actually tells us that he hung around for six weeks, 40 days, give or take. So why was it that he decided to stay. Why not just go right to heaven? I mean, he's God, right? He died, it is finished, it's all been done, but instead, he appears and disappears and reveals himself to people. So last week, you might need to go back and listen to it if you weren't here, but we have the Emmaus Road experience, and Jesus is teaching them the scriptures, and then the, he breaks bread. Remember, if you remember, I gave you this little illustration. He broke bread, and when he broke bread, what did he reveal? The two scars, and all of a sudden, their eyes are opened, and they see and then what happens? He disappears. Boom. And these two people are like filled with awe and wonder and amazement. It's like their hearts burn within them and they run seven miles back to Jerusalem in the dark in their little flip-flop sandals or whatever they were wearing and their little roby things. Can you imagine running seven miles? So they get there, and that's where we started reading this morning. They enter in with a group of the 11, and the 11 are actually saying it's true by this time. The 11 are going, whoa, Jesus is risen. He appeared to Peter. And then Cleopas and Mary get in there, and they start telling him their story. And when they're telling him their story, what happens? Jesus reappears. Now, why is it that Jesus disappears and reappears? Why is it that when people are just walking along doing their thing, Jesus suddenly shows up? What is it that he is actually trying to convey to us? And what is it that we as believers living today need to get from that? Jesus actually appeared to ten different either people or groups of people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to Simon Peter, and I will talk about this in this next series, but it must have been such a holy moment, it's not even recorded, except that it happened. It's recorded in two places that it happened, but we don't know what happened. He appeared to a group of women after they'd been at the empty tomb. He appeared to Cleopas and Mary, which we talked about last week. He appeared to the eleven without Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap because he's a doubter, but I love Thomas. I mean, I love Thomas because he had the courage to go, nah, I ain't believing all you guys unless I see it for myself. Then he appeared to the 11 with Thomas. Then Jesus shows up and hangs with the disciples when they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They've probably given up. We're going back to fishing. It's what we know. 
Then he shows up with a crowd on a mountain in Galilee, probably a place called Aramis Heights, which we'll talk about at some point in the future. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to a large group of disciples in Jerusalem, which we actually just read about, before he led them out to the Mount of Olives and over the top of the Mount of Olives to Bethany. He commissioned them, and he ascended into heaven. And then the last person it says he appeared to, which is really fascinating, and it was actually after he ascended, but Corinthians talks about this, was the Apostle Paul. Really interesting that he's included in that. So he appeared to 10 or 11, if you include Paul. So the question is, why is it that he appeared? Very unusual. Why did Jesus stick around? Why did he show up and leave and show up and leave? So, so think with me a second. Remember the guy named Lazarus? You guys remember him? What happened to Lazarus? He got raised from the dead. Okay, so a few years later, what would have happened to Lazarus? What? He would have died again. Oh, my goodness. Lazarus got raised, but he died again. Now, there was somebody else in the New Testament. Let's see here uh, if I can find it. What about Jairus' daughter in Luke 8? She was raised, right? What would have happened to her a few years later? She would have died again. You also have the widow of Nain's son. That's Luke 7. There's just a few people that, that were raised from the dead in the Bible. But what would have happened to that person? Died again. The difference with Jesus is when Jesus was raised from the dead, he lived to die no more. Jesus never died again. When Jesus was raised and that new body was given to him, he lived to die no more. One of the fascinating things, and I'm going to go back and answer my initial question in a minute, but one of the fascinating things to me about the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is there are some discrepancies in them. And I would actually say to you, and if you've sit, sat in any uh, religion 101 or 102 or 201 or 301 or whatever class, oftentimes you'll have a professor stand up there and go, well, these discrepancies therefore mean that the gospel story isn't real. But when you start digging in a little bit deeper, this is one of the things we are at Saltbox, is we want to be intelligent in the word. But when you start digging in a little bit deeper and you can begin to look at the differences in the four accounts that we have, all of a sudden what you start finding is these discrepancies are not contradictions, but rather they fit together. And I assure you that if we pulled up Judge Corpening, who's sitting right back here, and we put him on a little stool and we asked him, Judge Corpening, if you're in a courtroom and you're presiding over it and you have a group of four or five people who have given the exact word-for-word -word testimony and all the details are exactly the same and everybody did it in separate rooms, what is that saying? They're probably lying. So I would actually suggest to you that those discrepancies and the way those discrepancies begin to fit together actually prove the gospel story. They are not contradictions, as some professors who I've sat under would suggest. They didn't like me, by the way. I'd stand up and go, what about this? Are you sure about this? Have you actually looked at this? They hated me. Oh, my goodness. I didn't tell them anything, but I did ask questions. That's a lot better than telling your professor anything if you ever, you didn't know that. 
But all these things sort of fit together. They are not contradictions. They are discrepancies, and they fit together like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And it really um, would prove the gospel narrative as accurate because it was different people. Like, for example, one, one story says uh, Peter ran to the tomb. One story says Peter and John ran to the tomb. One, one of the narratives says there was one angel. One of the narratives says there's two angels at the tomb. I don't know about you, but when Abby and I sit and talk about details, <laughs> we often miss the details with each other. And as we've been married, one of the things I've learned is she is much better at details than me. We'll sit around all the time and I'll go, so you remember like six or eight months ago? And she'll go like, Michael, that was like three weeks ago. <laughs> but here's the, here's the point discrepancies, the way we perceive things, don't necessarily mean they're contradictions, okay? This is the gospel narrative that fits together, and if you're willing to look at it and slide the jigsaw pieces around the table, you will find we have a gospel narrative and a resurrection testimony from many, many different people that holds water. That holds water. Okay, so back to our question. Why did Jesus appear and disappear? Why does he keep showing up? He's sitting with Cleopas and Mary. They're breaking bread. Why all of a sudden is he gone? And Cleopas and Mary run back, and they're hanging out with the 11, so now there's 13 of them hanging out, and they're eating broiled fish, apparently. And why does Jesus reappear? He keeps entering and leaving, entering and leaving. Acts 1.3 says, after his, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, my first point. He was teaching them that they did not need to see him to know that he was there. Why did Jesus appear? And then why does Jesus disappear? Because he wanted every one of us to begin to get the message that when we're at the dinner table, Jesus, the ever-present, omnipresent, there at the beginning, there at the end, there in the middle, is with them. If you don't see him, if you can't hear him, that does not mean he is not there. And I think without saying it, this mystery of what Jesus begins to communicate through his actions, and we all know that actions speak louder than words, right? We can tell our kids, do this, do this, do this, and when you do this, what do they do? They copy you, don't they? We had a service project two weeks ago, and I sent out an email. Everybody wear long pants to protect your legs. And guess what I showed up in? I had one of those moments. Do as I, you know, do as I say, but not as I do. But see, Jesus didn't even say it here in this situation. He just demonstrated it again and again and again that he was there. This resurrected Jesus is now living in them, and he is demonstrating it. He is teaching them, and it's a lesson that I think, it's more than a lesson. It's a reality that we as New Testament believers have to grasp, that he is there with us. When you're depressed, he's there with you. When you're struggling with an addiction that's wanting to come back and claw you down into the mud, he's there with you. When you're looking at your finances going, oh gosh. When you're in a big fight with your spouse. When you're feeling all alone. And like God has no human, no person, no future for you. And it's all only just you. 
He is there with you. Like church, if we can get this deep down in our soul, if we can get this deep down in our belly, when we're by ourselves and when we're lonely and when we're hopeless and we're depressed and when we're stuck and you fill in the blank, in those moments, just like the disciples were this day, where Jesus showed up and said, peace be with you. He's there. He's there. Just like he's here. And when you surrender your life to him, he's living his life in you. Remember Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I, Michael, no longer lives, but Christ now lives in me and through me. Profound. Profound. Now, prior to the death of Christ Jesus and then his resurrection, the temple of Jerusalem was the place where heaven and earth came together. Remember the curtain ripped? We did that a few weeks ago. And remember it ripped? Did it rip from the bottom to the top or the top to the bottom? Top to bottom. You know how tall that ceiling would have been inside the temple? Way too tall for anybody to get on a ladder and to rip that big old thick curtain. <clears throat> Humans would have ripped it top to, or bottom to top. God ripped it top to bottom. And in that moment when Jesus was crucified, the very presence and power of Jesus left the Holy of Holies. It left the temple. So prior to that point... Um, the temple is the center of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem truly is the epicenter of the world. It is from uh, this place, Jerusalem, that faith and life and everything radiates out. And Jerusalem has a center, and it's the temple. So the temple is the place where heaven comes and earth meets, and these two things intersect prior to the death of Christ. Now, when Christ dies and that, tur that, that big curtain is torn... Where's the presence of Jesus? Where? In us? Did I hear that? Where's the presence of Jesus? One qualifier, if you surrender your life to him. Not part. All. Where's the presence of Jesus? Come on, church. Where's the presence of Jesus? One more time. Where's the presence of Jesus? No longer is the epicenter of the world, Jerusalem, where the temple is. No longer is that the only place where the presence of God dwells. From that moment on, all of that crossroads where heaven and earth meet that happened at the temple is now inside of you and me, if your life surrendered to him. So the place where heaven and earth meet is now in us. It's now in us. So when Jesus says, he's teaching them the Lord's Prayer, and he says, oh, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in, say that with me again, on earth as it is in, you become the epicenter, you become the crossroads, you become the place from which his presence goes. That means you at work. That means you at school. That means you when you're sitting in a university classroom religious setting and you're asking your professor questions. That means you when you're frustrated or in a fight with your spouse. And we forget so fast, don't we? Our depression, our hopelessness, our sadness, our pain, you fill in the blank. We forget so fast that when he said it is finished and that curtain tore, that we became the crossroads. The crossroads that was the temple in Jerusalem. The very epicenter of the world. 
if you actually study ancient, the ancient world, there was this, the, one of the main roads just went right down through Jerusalem. Symbolic. From Jerusalem came, from the temple came the presence of God, and now from us, from us. We carry the presence of God. <clears throat> the question would then become, do you live like he is there? That's hard, isn't it? If we're honest, that's hard. Do we live like he's there? Do we live like he is in us and through us? When we're hanging out with somebody out there, are we allowing the presence of the Lord Jesus to flow from us and radiate out? Oh, I'm not good at that all the time. When you're losing your temper or getting impatient with your kids, and I go, oh, Jesus, help me. Because it's in those moments you have to come back and remind yourself and surrender it all. I'm depressed, Lord Jesus. I'm hopeless. I'm frustrated. My body hurts. I'm sick. I've got another test at the hospital. I don't know how to get up and live another day. And yet, you know what? He is in you. He taught them that they didn't need to see him to know that he's there. Church, you don't need to see him. Wherever you are today, you don't need to see him to know that he is present with you. The second thing he did in this passage we just read is they showed him his body. These guys were scared. Jesus showed up, and what's their response? They're scared, and they are frightened. I mean, I was thinking back. Do you remember the, um, in Exodus? It's in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, several places. But when Moses came down from the mountain of God, do you remember what happened? His face was shining so bright, they wanted to put a bag on his head. They called it a veil or a handkerchief or something. But he put a bag on his head because the glory of God shone so brightly off of the face of Moses that they were like, the people were like, we cannot handle this. That's off a human. We have the Son of God who has just risen from the dead, who has conquered death and hell, and he has just appeared in their midst. Do you think they'd be frightened? Yes. Do I think I'd have been frightened? Think of Daniel in the Old Testament when the angel appeared. Several angels appeared to Daniel. Remember what it says? He grew pale. He grew weak. He couldn't even stand up at one point. When the supernatural intersects the natural, there is this thing for us to get frightened. So you've got these group, this group of disciples, 13 of them now because Mary and Cleopas, and they're startled and frightened. But he addresses their doubts. You know, he walks in, and he actually says, touch my body. Look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. That's back to that painting that that artist did where he took the hand of Thomas, and he put it into his side. Look at my hands. You know, one of the things I can't wait to do when I cross over into eternity, and I get to walk in and see Jesus face-to-face -face in that body, the same body, that we're reading about here, he'll have when we meet him on that day. I can't wait to see those scars. All five. Pierced for our transgressions. Pierced for our transgressions. So he walks in, and you have all these doubters. And let me just say here, I love that the disciples doubted. 
I love that there's a doubting Thomas. I love it because you have this group of people, these 11 guys, who are like so salt of the earth. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're like the real deal. And if it's not real, if they can't touch it and see it and taste it and smell it, then they're going, no way I'm going to give my life for this thing. So when people kept coming to them and saying, oh, yeah, we've seen the risen Lord. Oh, yeah, we've seen. They went in that way. You know, I love that because what happens is you have this group of people who was not in self-denial. Have you ever met a group of people who are in denial? They're in, like, collective denial together. There was actually a group written a few well, years ago about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs, and it's called Group Think. Because you had a group of people who were all thinking the same. But what I love here is you've got a group of disciples who are not in group think. They're so outside of that, and they're going, no, we're not going to take your word for it or your word for it. We're going to have to see him. Jesus walks in the room. He shows up. They are touching his body. They are looking at him. Why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. And then he says, you have anything here to eat? What? We're in this cataclysmic moment. Like all of heaven and earth is like just vibrating in this room. Y'all have anything to eat? What? And they produce a piece of boiled, uh, broiled, excuse me, fish. Broiled fish. And he takes the fish and he eats it. Now, why do you think he did that? He did that to prove to them that his body was real. Because if it wasn't real, that fish wouldn't have gone anywhere. But he ate the fish, and they're sitting there going, and there was some, one of them, I guarantee it, because we're all, you know, carnal and whatever, who's going, that's my dinner. <laughs> I can't believe you ate my dinner. And it's gone, like the fish is gone. And what that is saying to them, they're putting their hands in his scars. They're touching him. They're hugging him. They're like first scared, and then they're sort of warming up to this idea. And then they're watching him eat their dinner, and they're going, oh, my goodness, everything changes right here. Everything changes. Because this Jesus who we walked with, this Jesus who we gave all of our finances to, this Jesus who we left our jobs and our families over, this Jesus who we like served and have done nothing else for these three years, this Jesus who died, is now alive, and I'm alive with him. And I'm now called to carry the gospel of this Jesus. <laughs> One of the things I love about Jesus is he's always speaking out loud what other people in the room are thinking, but everyone is afraid to say. I love that about Jesus. He always just busts out and say the thing that nobody else in the room will say. You all have a friend like that, I'm sure. And half the time you're like, oh, gosh, I can't believe you said that. But Jesus is this guy who he actually says what everybody's thinking. So he's going, why do doubts arise in your mind? He just calls it out. He lays it out there and goes, what's going on with you guys? Look at me. Hug me. Touch me. Look at the scars. It is real. He's showing them this new body. And somewhere in this universe, that new body of Jesus still exists. And we will see it again. The third thing he did was he taught them his book. I'm not going to go too much into this because we nailed this one pretty hard last week, but he taught them the Bible. And he actually opened for them Genesis to Revelation. That's why we're in the one-year Bible. 
And look, I got news for you. If you treat the one-year Bible as like a hoop that you got to jump through every day and get our condemnation and whatever, it's not going to do a lot for you. But if you treat it as a relationship, which is what ha- is happening right here, verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. And he told them, this is what is written. He'd done a Bible study with them again. And when you read the book of Acts, which is the very next uh, uh, book that rolls out after this one, um, chronologically, what you have is uh, people like Peter who get up and give a credible sermon, and the sermon actually traces the Old Testament. You have Stephen, before he's stoned to death, gives a message like that. You have the Apostle Paul. You have people who actually begin to understand because their eyes have been opened to the whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's like this remarkable opening that happens in their minds. Now, if you read your one-year Bible this week, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you read it, there's some gnarliness going down in Judges, isn't there? That's hard to understand. But when you begin to look at the whole of Scripture through those uh, Christocentric or Jesus goggles, and you begin to look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you begin to let him interact with you and go, Lord, would you open my eyes to understand? Would you let me find you here? And not only that, would you let me find me here? Would you find me? And he begins to fill you and change you, and you don't even know it's happening. Your tithes pay for those one-year Bibles. If you don't have one, grab one. And there'll be some stuff that you go, I can't believe that's in the Bible. There was one, one day this week. There's a thing like that in Judges. We'll talk about that another day. So he taught them his book. If you want to go back and listen to last week's message, you could also. And then the fourth thing he did is he clothed them with power. This is amazing to me. He clothed them with power. He says in verse 47, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, that's the Holy Spirit, that's Pentecost. But stay in the city until you have been, what? Clothed with power from on high. Say it with me. Clothed with power from on high. Come on, one more time. Clothed with power from on high. I think there's probably so many Christians that successfully come through Easter. What do I mean by that? They successfully come to the place where they go, you know what, I do believe that Jesus died on that cross. But they stop there. And they don't continue on. Because at the end of those 40 days that Jesus walked the earth, then there's another season of prayer And then this thing happens called Pentecost. And at Pentecost, you get the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And part of what is happening here is Jesus is clothing them with power. He is activating them. Because you know what? You can't do this life without the infilling of the Spirit of Jesus, also called the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You must be clothed with power. So... That means on a day where I get up here and go, oh, my goodness, I'm tired, I don't whatever, you fill in the blank, I'm not a very good this or I'm not a very good that. What is the reality? What's the reality? I am clothed with power. So flip the scenario. On the days you go, I don't know how to get out of bed this morning. I don't know how to face my spouse today. I don't know how to face the magnitude of some of this ugliness in my life that I may have even created. I don't know how to deal with this situation or that situation. You begin to remind yourself that I have been clothed with power. 
The old guy is gone. The old girl is gone. Jesus has made me new. He's clothed me with power. One of the things that I am praying for us as a church is that we would be a group that not only embraces and understands the crucifixion and the resurrection, but we also embrace and understand that we get to be clothed with power from on high, and the Holy Spirit fills us and overflows from us. That's, that's that passage in John where it says, streams of living water will rise up. That's what he's called each of us to. So he clothes them with power. Remember, this is the place, the temple is the place that, that, that sort of intersection where heaven and earth met. And now on, that intersection, that epicenter, is literally us, you and me. And you carry that, if you're willing, everywhere you go. As long as we as a church meet in a school, we don't have to worry about this. But one day we may have a building. We may not. But I'll never call it a sanctuary. I'll never call it a sanctuary. You know why? Because you're the sanctuary. There is no temple that God dwells in any longer because you're the temple. I'm the temple. We are the carriers of Christ Jesus. I got to travel through Jerusalem or uh, through Israel a little over a year ago. It's been fascinating because I'm, I'm doing my one year or my five year journal that I have. I talk about that sometimes. But I'm looking back towards last year when I was actually there in Jerusalem. And one of the things that I loved is, is we were in Jerusalem, and I had a dear friend that I was traveling um, with, and Clive and Ruth were actually leading the trip. There's a dear friend that I was rooming with named Genny, and some of you have met him. And his son, David, is actually going to come here and, and uh, live with us and maybe some of us and go to UNCW. But anyway, <clears throat> Genny and I, um, after the evening would end with our little group, and most people would go to bed about 8 o'clock or go to their rooms or whatever, and Genny and I, you know, our, our wives aren't with us. Abby's here, and his wife's in Albania. And Genny and I would uh, actually get out on the, on the Jerusalem town, and we would hike out, and we would go and sit at the Western Wall. You've probably heard the, the word Western Wall in the news. Maybe you've read about it. Maybe you've even seen it. But what's fascinating is you, you have to, like, pass through all this security, and then you actually take a little um, Jewish hat and put it on your head as a sign of respect. And then I, I found myself a little... Um, flimsy lawn chair, and I would go literally sit next to the western wall. And you have all these Orthodox um, Jews with, with just fully decked out, and they are all there praying, and there's kind of a cadence they're all sort of praying to or, or in. And what's fascinating is when you look down this western wall, the very bottom layer or two were most likely stones that King David set aside. And they're most likely stones that King Solomon actually put in place in the building of the first temple. And what's happened is the Temple Mount is now occupied by a Muslim group, so the Orthodox Jews, the closest they can get to where the Holy of Holies would have been is that western wall. And they get so close, they're like up on the wall, you know, praying. And I would go sit there and just watch because... He's not there anymore. He's left the building. He's not in the temple any longer. He's clothed us in power if we're willing to receive it, if we're willing to embrace it, and if we're willing to walk in it. And he is actually wants to equip us and call us to carry him everywhere we go. We can't go to a place on earth anymore. 
Now, that's still a special place. I went there every single night when I was in Jerusalem, and I'd sit there from 9 to midnight. Every night, Genny and I sat there. Just wrote. I brought my Bible and read. Just sat there because it's an amazing place to be. The temple, the former epicenter of the entire world, the place from which Jesus came and went. And now that epicenter is us. The last thing that he did on this morning or this night is he gave them his blessing. It's my fifth point. He gave them his blessing. He opened their minds so they could understand his scripture, his book. Then he gave them his blessing. And it says, when he led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, this would have most likely been in another day, but he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. There's a beautiful commission that happens a few verses prior to this. And if you look at the other Gospels, you see this powerful commission that happens at the end. But one of the things he does as he blesses them is he actually raises his hands. And what's he showing them again in that moment? The scars. Don't forget. Now, the first time they lost Jesus, the first time they lost Jesus, there would have been much anguish. There would have been tears. There would have been depression. There would have been hopelessness. There would have been people going, God, we gave everything for you. Like we were all in and you left us. You died on that cross. But this time when Jesus left, he was saying, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. Wait here in this city because it's coming. Wait here. He clothed them with power and then he blessed them. I want you to think humanly with me for just a second. If you were betrayed by everyone, if you were sold out, if you were insulted, if everybody was ugly to you, and you came back, where's the first place you'd probably go? Maybe Pilate's house? You hear what I'm saying? Maybe Caiaphas' house? Maybe Annas' house? The people who tried Jesus? The people who condemned Jesus? Maybe the crowds? Maybe you'd show up to Simon Peter and grab him by the scruff of the neck and go, you betrayed me. But we have this Jesus who walks with them, who teaches them that they don't have to see him with their physical eyes to know that his presence is there. He shows them his body. He shows them his scars. He opens their minds to understand his book, his scriptures. Clothes them with power from on high. And then he raises those scarred hands. And he blesses them. Where he could have easily cursed them. Where he could have easily hated them. And all of a sudden we see the God of the Old Testament is the God of love. Only God in any religion, anywhere you will find that it says God is love. God is forgiveness. And he blesses them and he commissions them to go forth, to be the new epicenter from which ministry and life will go out. Will you walk with him even if you don't see him? Will you have faith in his resurrection? Will you be found in his book? Will you allow him to clothe you with power? And will you receive his blessing? If you will, will you stand and worship with me?